Hello and welcome to the Making Good Podcast, the platform for people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. In this week's episode, I spoke with Dr. Tom Young, an academic and practitioner of blue and green roofs with a PhD in substrate design. Tom has been centrally involved in the design and implementation of the new British standard in green roof substrate, which was launched recently. We discussed how the standard came about and why it matters, who the stakeholders are, and explored some of the basic questions involved, such as the difference between good and bad green roof substrate, why it's important to embrace variation in green roof design, and why we should be designing for outcomes, not just according to specification. We began with a simplified overview, looking at the benefits of green roofs for urban environments and building occupants, some of the different ways of achieving vegetation at roof level, and how green roof design can affect the way these benefits can be achieved in practice. So, Dr. Tom Young, welcome to um, welcome to Making Good. Thanks very much for joining me. Can you tell the um, listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, obviously I've had quite an, an academic background so far in my career. I, um, I studied at University of Sheffield in the Animal and Plant Science Department there looking at ecology originally. Um, so I did that for four years. Um, and kind of got into blue green infrastructure quite early on there um, did quite a lot of nice projects looking at how water can be used to kind of cool cities and uncovering of rivers and stuff so I got exposed to that quite a, uh, early on in my academic career and then I, I was lucky enough to get a, a PhD place on a program called eFutures which was actually looking at all different types of renewable energy um, and then through that, I, I kind of learned about green roofs through the, the Green Roof Centre at Sheffield. Um, there's a guy there who used to be based there called Jeff Sorrell, who, who I got to know. And I kind of got the bug quite early on. Um, and then from that, I did a PhD on green roof substrate design. Um, and that was sponsored by a company. And that's kind of where I um, I got exposed to more applied research um, and less kind of um, higher end academic research. Um, because the company obviously sponsored the the PhD for a reason, they they want to get some data, but ultimately they're getting data to to improve their products. So I kind of got that the bug again for applied research and actually seeing your research implemented in real life, which is is really exciting. Um, so finished there in 2014 and was and was looking around for a job. Didn't really know what I was I wanted to do. Um, and I found a job at a company called SQI who I'd, I'd never heard of before, who who actually specialised in sports turf. Uh, consultancy and testing and research so very applied but for um, a very different kind of type of market but when I started the job there and that was for managing trials for clients um, testing for, for external clients it became quite apparent to me that a lot of the methods we we're using in that sector were very similar to what uh, the green roof industry needed uh, and also um, did to a certain extent and the crossover between the two industries is actually quite amazing and um, especially in my sphere of the, the substrate element to it where uh, a lot of the companies that provide sands for high-end football premier league football pitches also provide the substrate for for green roofs as well so the, the kind of crossover was perfect for me um, and then start from there we've uh, we've been developing the green roof side of um, the sgri business for three four years now and it's really starting to take off where um i'm spending quite a lot of my time not doing anything to do with sports which is uh, sometimes quite a nice thing i can um <clears throat> i can imagine that the um the sports stadium work that you've been doing is um is quite uh quite a fun aspect and it must make if your phd was um 
with anything like mine must be a world away from that kind of um, uh, kind of being holed up in um, well for you a lab for me an office trying to um, trying to make sense of um, of data and numbers and, um, and 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 so forth. Can we um, try and unpack a little bit just for um, for those people that are listening um, to uh, some of the um, some of the some of the uh, technical words that we're using here? So brass tacks, substrate. Um, that's that's the that's the stuff the plants grow in, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a good one to tick off straight away. So substrate, I'll be using that. Um, it's essentially soil um, or yeah, soil for, for green roofs. Uh, the problem with green roofs are not necessarily a problem, but they're, they're entirely a human creation. And so um, you obviously need to take your, your soil up there on the roof. Um, historically, people will have used just soil to get out the ground. But generally now it's uh, what we call substrate, a manufactured soil. So it's been created by... Um, humans to do a certain um, purpose um, and the which obviously the main one is to, to grow the plants on a roof that's right and so I love those pics out there of sod roofs in Scandinavia Iceland the Faroe Islands and so on where it's really rudimentary sods of earth dug up and laid on the roof often over bark stripped from trees nearby why do we need uh, to manufacture stuff to grow the plants in why don't we just still use soil today yeah, well, I guess it's it's been a very long kind of process, and as you said quite rightly, original green roofs not technical at all. Often they were built out of necessity, um, lack of wood. Um, often was a case of you look around for what else you can build. Um, I think generally a lot of credit has to go to the German industry in the 1970s, who were really were the pioneers of what what we kind of call the modern green roof. So rather than building a green roof out of kind of what's there really starting to think of well how can we kind of make this a replicatable um product and and so they they, they really pioneered that in the 70s and they they wrote um, a big list of standards which we'll, we'll come on to in, in a bit um, which really was the first one in the industry very germanic in its form um i'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of it but it's abbreviated to fll but it's uh, it's probably about 150 <laughs> characters long but that really set the scene for it um and and ever since then, it's it's partly, I suppose, due to human nature of of industries of wanting to kind of create law order in uh, in what essentially can be quite a lawless kind of society, especially something like growing media. Um, but generally, yeah, it's that kind of consistency. If you if you're starting to build things on a on a very big commercial scale, you need to be able to ensure that the quality of what you're going to get is consistent and one of the things with soil is that naturally it varies quite a lot so if you dig a hole in the ground in, in one part of london for example um, and take some soil from there it could be very different a very different characteristic so if you dug dug a hole even only a mile away um, and so that's, that's the main yeah difference in terms of um, in terms of what we're growing it but also when you're thinking about building performance in terms of I would say especially the rate at which water will be um, able to leave what will, um, will, will will leave the roof and how long does it stay saturated how heavy is it when it's saturated these these are the kind of things that are business critical when you're designing designing roof and also budgeting for how strong the structure needs to be right so um kind of the key parameters you've you've touched upon there the most important one is that you're not going to make that building collapse since you put on it and engineers are people who deal in numbers all day long and so the first thing they'll ask you is how heavy is it going to be so hence the need for a sink of consistency so that's that's probably one of the more important ones that you um you design or you test from an engineer's point of view is how how heavy it is they're less bothered about the the kind of the fluffy stuff i suppose of the actual growing but to 
to us as as biologists that is the most important bit and the substrate it is doing what the soil does and the soil does so many different things in on the ground that you're creating this artificial soil that needs to do all of those things and probably more on, on a roof a roof is a very extreme environment and um, often these these roofs you you put on the soil level or the substrate level is very shallow due to the the weight that we've uh, discussed the weight loadings we've discussed um, and so you're trying to make this artificial soil keep plants alive and this is talking about long-term growth as well 30 40 years at the same time holding on to enough water to let the plants grow but then at the same time not holding on to that water so much that the roof becomes so heavy and collapses um, and then adding to all of that the, the subject has to remain stable it can't blow off the roof so it has to be heavy enough to stay on the roof but it can't be so heavy that it it causes weight issues and then it also has to stay there for 20 30 years it kind of can't collapse down into a mush and, and not really do anything in yeah that's right and i guess the, well. the final thing is also in terms of the difference between say soil which is very rich in organic matter and um, the stuff we grow um, plants i mean green roofs is the um is the organic content which is uh which is kept very low to um to minimize the the risk or perceived risk of um of fire spreading across the roof yeah exactly there's uh i suppose just turn on two points there the um, roofs are kind of has a, a very nice continuum so you go from very what we would call extensive green roofs so these are essentially replicating a bit of a desert environment and so you're not putting too much organic matter on there because you don't want to force too much growth because ultimately you're going to have to go up there and cut it so these are designed to be as, as low maintenance as possible um, and one of the ways of making them low maintenance is to select the plants very carefully so you have very stress hardy plants that don't really need much looking after they do obviously require some looking after uh, and so you design that substrate to where uh, you're on a very fine line of keeping the plant alive, but at the same time not promoting too much growth. Obviously, then green roofs can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is gardens on a roof. And so you're much more trying to replicate what is a natural soil there. So you want to increase your organic matter because the the kind of plants you want to encourage there are, are more um, less stress tolerant and more of your standard kind of garden plants. There's a huge continuum between the two, and organic matter kind of follows that that quite nicely. And going leading on to the the fire kind of point of view as well, that's another thing that um, the industry is obviously had to look at very carefully now in in light of recent events where. Um, the substrate itself it, it potentially could be flammable but probably more importantly is the vegetation it's growing on top of it as well so if you have excessive vegetation on the top and um, that potentially could also become the, a um, fire hazard as well we've looked at um at the fire content of um of, subs of substrate of growing media when we were um, doing some research with brighton university which was adapting a um a, a kind of a, a, a lo-fi swiss method of you might i i feel like is on definitely on the circular economy spectrum in the sense that it diverts um, agricultural waste um, from um, from from local farms onto um, onto green roofs to increase the depth of the um, of of the growing medium. So over there it was uh, uh, misganthus uh, waste. So there was a, a one one farm in particular that we visited during this research trip. They had um, they had uh, misganthus, which is like fibrous grass, which is um, processed um into um eventually into uh pellets for biomass boilers so the guy threw a load of this stuff on his roof and about 50 mil of um of soil and one of the most um species rich uh green roofs i i i visited during my um, during my time in switzerland but when it came to um <clears throat> came to apply that over here all the years ago that we did i think it um 
think it was 2013, 2014, when we first started the um, the process of, of, of working in in this way. We um, we didn't have miscanthus abundantly available, but one thing we do have abundantly available in the UK is uh, is is hay and and straw. And so we've um, we when we had the opportunity to channel some um, some matched funds from uh, from the European Union into um, into some innovation research, we um, we basically subjected this material to all of the um, all of the tests that you could do. And it was re- pretty remarkable, really, um, to you know putting all of the material through the kilns, get doing the science. Like I guess this is the stuff that you're doing day in day out but 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 really even even with all of that um that material on the um on on the roof um once it's um once it's all mulched down prior to it mulching down you've got the under um, substrate itself which lays on top provides the uh provides the fire resistance but after it's all mulched down even then it comes underneath the um, what's considered the safe the safe levels it's um <clears throat> It's uh, um, what things do you find in green roof substrate? And let's, if we may, let's um, stick at the kind of the extensive end, the thin, the, the kind of the thin sedum and wildflower meadow roofs that we normally see, rather than the more horticultural end. You know, the intensive green roofs that people will see on, on office blocks, on um, on hotels, hospitals, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to pick up on your last point as well, I think that it's really nice to kind of hear that type of construction because I mean it really highlights the fact that there's no single right answer, and I think that's one thing which we'll come on to with the standard that we've, um, we've we've tried to kind of put that message out there that green roofs should be. It's good that green roofs are different, and there's some some work, some types of construction work in some situations, and some don't work in other situations. So I think it's kind of great to hear you really pushing the boundaries of, of what is a substrate and what you can put in there. Um, it's, because I um, think that ultimately is going to benefit the industry. In terms of the kind of things you'd, you'd find in, I suppose, more conventional substrate is the organic matter now, um, there's been a big move away from peat, um, more for kind of ethical reasons and, and sourcing. So the organic matter you'll find in a lot of substrates now is, is green waste compost. Um, obviously in this country we've, in the last probably 10 years we've had a, a really good increase in in large composting so there's a lot of good quality compost out there that's come from and is that like um, is that will that waste, waste will that be like sources. domestic domestic is green waste the kind of stuff that people, people are taking to the tips on a sunday afternoon or is it yeah generally now it's um there's a there's a lot of it available because most local authorities now run some sort of green bin service uh, and ultimately at the end of it they produce a really nice product um that passes all of there's a, there's a certain standard called pass 100 which essentially means it's it's good quality compost and that is is really good you can get it at different grades so you can get quite a coarse one or fine one and most of the time it's uh, it's pretty good stuff um and uh, because it's it's all kind of kind of waste sources, it's it's obviously got. A pretty, and is that um, just just as a, a, a slight tangent? Uh, um, does that mean that when we're when we're recycling that? Yeah, I think generally, I think it depends on um, certain local authorities are better than others. I think um, I think some still might view it as a product which they need to get rid of. Um, and then potentially pay for people to uh, to then compost it for them. But the more kind of um, open-minded local authorities will compost it themselves and uh, obviously create a revenue stream for the local authority by utilising something that they potentially would have had to have paid to get. Got it, got it. So um, 
so back to um, back to the question I was asking in terms of um, in terms of green roof substrates. What are the and I guess and I know because we're going to talk about it. There's quite a wide variety in terms of um, of quality and composition. But what are the general things um, as well as um, as well as compostable material that you'd expect to see in a, in green roof growing medium? Yeah. Okay. So. Um... So compost that probably forms about 20, generally about twenty percent by volume of of the mix, and then the rest of the mix is what you're trying to do is create a, a nice structure for the, the plant to grow in. So within that, you want lots of nice pore space. You don't want something that compacts down to absolutely nothing, because obviously the plant roots can't have anywhere to go. So you're looking for aggregates um, that can can provide that bulk to you, and um, obviously the green roof industry has been very good. Partly from a price point of view, but also from its its kind of whole design ethos of looking for waste sources that they can use, and um, a lot of work was done probably in the the, the mid nineties, early two thousand, of using um, waste from brownfield sites. So that included a lot of rubble. There's generally been a bit of a move away from that now because obviously the content could be quite variable, and you could end up with kind of breeze blocks up on a roof. But people have kind of taken that ethos and looked at sources like crushed brick um, from a lot of uh, brick manufacturers have a certain amount of rejects bricks due to kind of shapes and sizes, which they can then crush up. Uh, and for them, it's a waste product. Um, and so that's quite a nice revenue stream for them. And it's um, it, that those kind of subjects form quite a nice um, kind of homogenous mixture. And then other people look at more manufactured lightweight aggregates because ultimately you always have to come back to the, the weight of the roof um, and you're trying to make, keep it as lightweight as possible but at the same time keep the uh, keep the structure nice and open so there's there's certain products out there there's um, heat expanded clay often referred to as lecker so that's where people take um, clay pellets and then heat it up quite quite warm and then they blow air into it so you end up with a it's almost like a um, a Nesquik kind of style little <laughs> ball uh, or kind of like a bit like a Rice crispy. Um, but made out of clay that you can stick in your substrate and that ultimately reduces the density of it. And there's, there's a few of us, there's a, a type one called Litag, which is made out of waste products from uh, Drax Power Station. So that's obviously a, a nice use of a waste product. And then there's another one I've come across, more of a German product, which is they take waste glass and then heat it up and do the same sort of thing. So you end up with hmm. a, a nice kind of honeycomb structure. Um, and so they're all designed to ultimately act as a bit of bulk um, that's um, that that's interesting. Nice you mentioned glass. Right I remember we did um, we did a project in the New Forest a couple of years ago, and the um, the main contractor there was telling me about um, a product he was super excited about, which I've I've, I've not seen come along um, since. But he was convinced it was it was going to be big, and that was um, replacing um, uh, using crushed recycled glass for um, for foundations instead of piling. So or pile the holes instead of using concrete, you'd um, you'd fill it with um, which with crushed glass. Apparently, it's incredibly stable, and then um, and then pad stones off. I guess it it's limited to a certain size of structure. I'm no structural engineer, but it's um, I think as um, I interviewed uh, last week uh, Duncan Baker Brown, we were talking about um, about the, um, the circular economy in architecture, and there's a there's a really interesting array of um, of of uh, materials kind of coming coming under the spotlight now now that now that more and more people are thinking more and more creatively about um about what's a waste stream what how can how can things be be repurposed reused there's um i think i'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that we'll be seeing even um 
even more of this. So, um, so in terms of the um, in terms, so before we get into the origins of the building standard, can we just talk quickly for those who are new to the subject about the benefits of vegetated surfaces? Let's dive a little bit into what it is that's intended to be achieved, as I think this all helps at the scene for why the standard is such a welcome development. One of the ways I like to think about uh, breaking this down is in terms of public and environmental goods um, and, and, and on the other hand goods which accrue to the building occupants and or its owners. Yeah definitely so yeah I think you've separated them out quite nicely there's the benefit the wider kind of benefit to the city um, and I think the most important to me the most important one is the the effect on the heat so there's a there's a, a a thing that happens in most cities now um, called the urban heat island effect where cities are generally a lot warmer uh, than the surrounding area partly due to the, the vast amounts of concrete uh, tarmac and glass that are in cities now and uh, to the point where there's some pretty alarming statistics in big uh, european and, and other cities outside of europe where the death rate during heat heat um, waves is pretty astronomical and a lot of that is due to um, the city just staying warm because we completely changed that natural uh, cycle of it's hot during the day, but you naturally should get cooling at night. And so um, having any sort of greenery of obviously green roofs are part of it can really help um, reduce the temperature of the surrounding area as well as that local building as well. So you kind of get that local and, and larger effect. So to me, that's the, the one of the, well, the most important one, especially the, with the way that the climate is going now with much more extreme um, weather cycles. The next big one that really gains a lot of traction and probably one of the main reasons, especially in the UK, why roofs are specified is the stormwater retention ability of that. So that's holding onto water that falls on the roof that otherwise with a conventional drainage system would fall on the roof, fall down a gutter system and go into the um, the drainage system as, as quickly as possible. Um, now that worked quite well in the past, but what's happening now is that essentially the um, the final outlet big drain pipe is, is full and that's why you can get big local flooding in, in urban areas. So the whole ethos of green roofs and blue roofs is, a, is another type of roof where you hold more water on the roof is to slow that water flow down, keep it on the roof, ideally, so it never leaves that roof at all. And so you're almost creating a closed-loop system, essentially what um, vegetation in the in non-urban environments is like. So they're probably the two most important ones um, for that, that wider area. There's There's been other studies done looking at things like noise um, absorption. And obviously it, it's quite kind of easy to see that vegetation is, is nice uh, at absorbing noise. It's not as echoey as, say, a, a big glass tunnel, which you often get in urban areas. Uh, and as well as air pollution as well, that's gaining a lot of um, more interest now due to it's obviously the very kind of alarming statistics, but where the um, air pollution physically will stick onto the vegetation. And that's one thing that vegetation is really good at is absorbing that and, and kind of almost rendering it um, a bit more safe. Um, the, the other one, I think the one that's probably it's harder to quantify, but to me just as important is the visual aspect. Cities are places where people live and work and they should be beautiful places and vegetation is a very easy and actually a very cheap way of, of making areas pleasant places to be uh, and so to make buildings look great and nice is is a very good thing and it, and it makes people happier there's a lot of studies that have shown that people in hospitals for example can recover a lot quicker if you're exposed to these sorts of um uh, kind of greenery and um 
nice kind of views. And then also from a, I suppose a, a more darker, but it's still a very strong argument is the economic argument. People have been shown to work actually a lot more efficiently and harder if exposed to nice views, which kind of goes back. If you're, if you're feeling happy and Tom, I have to tell you that kind of one of the reasons I'm able to rinse so much effort from my staff is because they're constantly looking at plants while they're doing their work. So I can crack the whip and get an extra seven, <laughs> seven or 8% Brilliant. out of um, out them. <laughs> but no, the, the thing that you, you summarize that really eloquently and, uh, and focus in particular on the, um, on the public health benefit in, in wider society, there's been a really welcome shift recently in the last few years to understand like some of the um some kind of some of the softer more private elements of um of 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 well-being so mental health and and so forth i'm a big believer in um in in nature for itself not for not because it makes us more efficient but but because it in through that connection with um with nature we there's a there's a there's a, a possibility that a chance for us to be to, to, to connect with our higher selves a little bit more which you know you're in danger of sounding a little bit flaky when you say it but it's the it's the great unspoken win and I've also you know got, I've got a hunch that that there's going to be um, maybe one of the obstacles that we have um, at the moment to um, the even wider uptake of green infrastructure is because it's often seen as being too maintenance intensive even though you know a decent green roof once it's up and running only needs one definite visit with maybe a, a reactive maintenance visit later on in the year but i'm i'm just wondering you know with a, all of this talk of um of ai and um and technological advances making um you know making all of different um different jobs redundant whether or not there's like a really neat opportunity for us to dovetail an increased amount of um of socially available labor time with um with uh with the possibility for looking after the planting that's providing all of the um all of the benefits um uh, around the place we we've got a a project that's not yet come to fruition which we're um which we're still in um in developmental stage with with a with a really key stakeholder in um in a major British town where we're actively seeing if we um if if we can if we can integrate both their um like kind of staff access to nature and also community access to nature on some of the um the real estate that they're planning to um to cover in in greenery it's something that i'm i'm super excited about for the um for the future to play a part in you know just making everyone a little bit happier as well as all of the environmental benefits yeah well i think there's in america i'm not sure so much in the uk there's some really nice examples of um urban farms that have now been put up right, on there's like huge one in Brooklyn, right? as social yeah. kind of enterprises so you've got your green roof but it's yeah exactly and they're growing serious amounts of vegetables there but the idea is that anyone can get involved so you've got the social community aspect of people interacting with each other they're on a, a really nice beautiful space and amongst greenery so you're kind of ticking all all the boxes i think probably less um less kind of socially straight away uh, beneficial but i think it's always an important example because um it's very interesting to see companies like google facebook um who you know like them or loathe them they're very kind of big companies and they don't often do things without good reason their new headquarters that they're all building all have included green roofs for probably the very reasons we've all spoken about their their reason <laughs> spoken with voice probably a bit right. darker so they're the new um, staff kind of they're the uh, new air hockey tables or trampolines or table footballs in the <laughs> 
Exactly, yeah. It's actually a green roof where you can go and have a, a run round or go and sit up there and, and work up there. And they've kind of really, they've really recognised that, you know, happy staff are actually much more uh, productive and just generally better for the company. But, you know, from a from an employee point of view, it's, uh, it's still um, I think, a nice I think the underlying offer. thing, which is um, which is really interesting for all of us working, working in this field, is um, it's not even just that once you've recruited staff on, say like all of the old terms that um that that this is a way of of keeping them but but actually now that we're in, becoming increasingly sophisticated about the ways in which we start to judge both the companies that we want to trade with and the companies that we that we maybe want to work for i mean i remember getting into right at the start it was always the case you know nothing nothing signals your green um credentials shall we say like having um like having meadow flowers creeping over the um the top of your um the top the, the front of your the front of your roof like so that the the aspect that you're showing to the street demonstrates that you like you're embodying that but not only for most people because they they know that there's a financial investment that's been made there but actually just that literally the sight of the sight of all of those plants that feeling of connection and if if companies increasingly use um use nature in meaningful ways to um to 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 convey that then there's 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 a real joined up win i'm not advocating as as you often see you know like the uh uh, get, uh, car manufacturers in their fancy showrooms, like wrapping um, the last remnants of the um, internal combustion engine age in um, in, um, in 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 living in living walls. I I've got to say I do see a little bit of I get a bit of cognitive dissonance when I see that, but but I do think that there's uh, that those. You're absolutely right to point out that those companies who have got like they've got anthropologists and sociologists at board level working out what's going on in society, then it's no accident that the um, the kind of field that you and I work in at a, maybe at a, certainly much less lucrative level than Apple and Google but it's it's no coincidence that there's um, that, that that access to meaningful nature is in bet is right at the heart of their um, of their real estate and the way in which they, um, they 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 present themselves to the world now But I think yeah, just going off topic a little bit in terms of um, more STI's kind of day-to-day -day job, we, we do a lot of work with, well, we've essentially pioneered um, the use of ecology on golf courses. Golf courses have an exceptionally bad um, uh, rep really outside of the turf industry, but golf courses are, when you walk on them, a well-managed golf course is essentially a, a nature reserve. And, and so SGI kind of pioneered the ecological management of golf courses and encouraging golf courses to manage areas um, which are ecologically much more uh, beneficial to the local environment, but potentially more economically viable for the club. For example, having a wildflower meadow, if it's managed right, is actually very low maintenance. So the, com the club can save money by, by doing that. But we... Um, just back to your point about kind of wildflowers lapping over a building edge we we run a um a competition every year called the golf environment awards where golf courses can enter in projects that they've done and, and some of the best ones that we've seen is the clubs have actually used the the award of being the best golf environmentally friendly club in in the uk and they use that as a badge of honor um and quite rightly but you know you get to the sign at the front and i've seen some really nice examples where the entrance sign to the club is a, a mini green roof with wildflowers coming off it you know nothing says you know i fancy going playing golf there if that's that's exactly right i'm excited to hear about this i feel like um every week i'm doing my little podcast i mentioned um, the author malcolm gladwell but he's um 
such an interesting bloke and his podcasts are absolutely gold standard in terms of the lyrical way in which he um he presents like the kernel of a of an idea and weaves a story around it but he did a he did a whole um episode uh, a couple of years ago about um about trying to democratize um golf clubs and make them uh, make them more more accessible as um as places for um for for people to spend time I'm, i i wonder if maybe what we'll do um when i um when i edit up the the podcast tom if i can get some um some pictures of some of the the golf clubs that you mean that you're um some of these some of these things we can maybe stick some links into um so so people can see what you're um what you've um what yeah, you've just definitely. mentioned there so um so uh we were talking about um about benefits and we um we 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 divided this up into um into kind of the public goods and of course one of the things that um we maybe maybe now's not the time but the we we haven't really mentioned but we probably put under that um under that kind of heading is the um is the replication of um of lost habitat at um at roof level so that um so that you know that we are doing a, performing a meaningful meaningful service to the um to the to the ecology of the um of the local area but the the there are very specific um benefits that um that can accrue to the um to the to the property and to the you know to the wallet of the um of the homeowner aren't there Yeah, definitely. So I kind of touched upon a couple uh, recently, um, so earlier, but one of them, a main one now for the, the water management side is that increasingly in urban areas to build a new building or to have an extension, you, there's some pretty strict regulations on what you do with your water. So gone are the days when you can just plug your pipe into the drainage and you say goodbye to your water. So now there's a, there's a lot of... Um, planning requirements for you to keep your water on site anyway and obviously the green roof can help with that so that's kind of point number one in the first place of actually getting the building built um, and the green roof can help with that uh, probably from a more economical point of view i mentioned earlier about the, the heat so you're you're reducing the heat in the the wider kind of area but there's been some really nice studies that have shown that the the, the building itself can be cooled by the green roof especially those upper floors which naturally get very warm due to heat rising but also being so close to the to, you think of standard flat horrible roofs with uh, kind of bitumen on they get blooming hot in the, in the summer uh, and so having a green roof on there can mean that uh, office space right, below is, is much more comfortable sorry for the go user. on and potentially there's Sorry, I was getting, and then it's, yeah, there's a, I don't know if you were about to mention the study that showed that air conditioning use as well um, was reduced in a lot of buildings with the green roof on because the the air inside the building is less warm in the first place. So the air con has to work less, so you're using less energy. So it's a really nice kind of cycle. And then to add to all of that is that then the air con units themselves work much more efficiently because the air they're pulling in is a lot cooler. Than, a really, uh, than like a really harmonious um, a kind of symbiosis. The, um, the 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 case study that I was going to mention was the um, was the case of uh, Chicago City Hall. So downtown Chicago, you've got a um, beautiful old nineteen thirties mm. building which houses the um, the city authority and the county authority. One of both of them invested in solar panels, um, but one of them, I think it was the city authority, because at one point Chicago had like eight or nine financial levers that encouraged um, encouraged uptake of of green roofs. So the city authority, as well as the um, as well as their PV, put up um, like a, a 150 mil six inch uh, extensive green roof and then and then you have this fantastic like kind of longitudinal study of the benefits over time of like of, of the same building but with different um 
different build-ups and it showed that there was um over over the year 95 percent less heat entered the um those um the rooms below the um the uh the green roof than um, you count your contributions of um in terms of thermal mass um and then there's the huge one of course isn't there to uv which is the thing that perishes the um the kind of the traditional materials the fossil fossil based uh bituminous um covering so by like overlaying them with your with your green roof you, you massively extend the life of them i i know that the um one of the membrane types that we use um uh a uh, hertelan um rubber um system they um an EPDM system. I remember seeing a proof of life certificate from um, from those guys of fifty plus years and still going strong. Where it's been um, where already a, a material that's already UV resistant is, um, is is still is still cracking on. And and perhaps the the single best example. I remember when we took uh, Duncan Baker Brown as part of our um, res uh, hay base research to uh, to Switzerland. Um, he was he was pretty staggered by the um, by the uh, realization that the um, that there was a hundred-year-old asphalt roof that had never had to be repaired because it had um, it had been covered in um, in uh, initially sand, which had then vegetated over 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 a period of time. The, um, the, 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 the there's a little bit of a uh, how should we say this? Um, the, 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 as a selling point, this extending of uh, the lifespan of the roof is mitigated somewhat by the recognition that in um, certainly in the UK, it's rather rare that the person investing up front in the cost of um in the cost of those materials is likely to be um, likely to enjoy um uh, the occupation of that building for um over its in entire life cycle so these are probably um selling points which are directed better to like local authorities to you know to public public bodies um that, that are going to be um in for the um in for the duration but one of the great things about green roof benefits is that they're um it's you know there's a little bit something for everyone here right yeah exactly yeah yeah definitely i think another one just to add to that is um because a lot of people when you say green roofs i know i had this when i was early on when i started on ph uh, my phd was that they thought green roofs meant pv solar panels and um, which and then a lot of people kind of think the two are exclusive to one another but there's some really nice examples where people have put a biosolar roof on um, and so you've got vegetation growing amongst the solar panels and it's it's been shown that the solar panels actually operate much more efficiently because the air That's around right. and, um, is, uh, there's is been, being caused um, there's been a lot of work done I know so that the, um, more electricity uh, the, you know, the pioneers of green roofs in the, the UK have really well. ramped up you know the green infrastructure consultancy and so forth have really been able during the Olympic uh, London Olympics and beyond have been really able to um, to push the uptake in the UK but the um uh, the, <laughs> you still get the resistance I still get when uh, when people uh, when when this comes up in um, in design meetings is about um, but is about shading of the of the solar panels. I've got a whole set of slides of the um, of the state of so called self cleaning <laughs> solar panels on um, on 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 roofs that you see. There's um, I tell you seagull seagulls do a lot more to inhibit any solar panels. <laughs> <laughs> than um than than any than than, than the odd yeah. cornflower stem like waving in waving in um waving in front of it 
so um that's a, i mean that's a, a a great overview for those yeah. who um, yeah. who haven't um who haven't come to um it's probably too long of an overview for those of us who, who know all about green rooms but there there you go I, 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 we do i do tend to waffle on a little bit the um the um <laughs> the British stand. Could you could you tell me a little bit about the origins from from your perspective of the um, of the of the need for it and um, and 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 I really like to hear about the um, the process that you've that you've gone through in order to secure it. Yeah. Okay. So it's probably best to to start very um we're talking about other standards that are available out there there's the the german standard which i referenced earlier the fll which is kind of very widely known in the industry um and then there's, a, there's an american one there's a swiss one there's an italian one so there's quite a few out there and there's probably some more that i haven't mentioned um so the, one of the problems i found with uh, joining sui and starting to offer a lab testing service for substrates so for people to come to me and say what are the characteristics of my substrate? And uh, I think we'll come on to some of those characteristics later. But they, people want to know what the characteristics of the substrate are. And one of the problems you have is you can go, okay, well, I can test it with this method or I can test it with that method. And, and ultimately, people didn't really know what test method they wanted to test to. And uh, the default position in the UK was to always just quote the FLL, maybe not understanding what it was, Um but there's there's potentially a few issues with the FLL. It, it's worked very well in Germany. Um, it was written in the 1970s, updated um, in the 2000s. But it was very much aimed at the, the German market, which was very successful at installing a lot of sedum-based green roofs across Germany uh, due to a lot of um, good government tax breaks. The, the problem with the methods, in, in my opinion, and a few other people's opinion, is um, they weren't didn't necessarily replicate exactly what the substrate would be like on a roof so um you get this problem with test methods a lot anyway because you're never going to replicate exactly what it's going to be like in the real environment ultimately what you're trying to do is come up with a consistent set of ways of assessing the substrates or the soils so you can compare it and come up with a good idea pretty good idea is if that substrate is appropriate or, or good or bad in, in very simplistic terms so kind of in parallel to all of this um, there's a, a trade organization called grow which represents um, the majority of the uk green roof market and um, they they were talking about the british standard as well more from a, a general green roof point of view they've, they've got their own code of practice which talks about all aspects of a green roof not just the substrates um, and about a very a big a beginner friendly guide to what you should do if you if you're going to try and specify a green roof so they approached the bsi originally and i think the discussions didn't didn't really go anywhere because i think there was a, maybe a lack of um general direction as to what you they wanted to do um i became involved in grow in about 2016 um, and along with i think a lot of credit has to go to chloe molyneux of university of east london who has also been involved throughout the whole process and she was the main driver approaching the BSI in about 2017 and saying, uh, coming back with a more kind of um, focused 
um, standard proposal and that was for a set of methods so actually let's just agree on a way of testing our substrate in the first place let's not get too bogged down in and what is a good substrate and what's a bad substrate let's actually just agree on how we're going to test them because how can we get to the next level of saying what is a good substrate if you know you're testing it in a different way to how i'm testing it so we went to them um admittedly off our, our own backs but with the backing of grow and um, we then had to make a business case to the bsi the bsi are ultimately a, a business they make their business by selling uh, writing standards and then selling them back to the industry um, in the uk as, as well as abroad as well so we had to make a business case to them who accepted they realized there wasn't really anything like this in the in the uk um at, at the moment and so they could see that people it, there was a need for it and so within all of that me and chloe helped the bsi assemble a team of experts and it's it's worth pointing out that everyone involved in that process um who are non-bsi we're all voluntary. No one was paid anything for this. This was done all off our, our own backs. And with a lot of things, it's very London-centric. So great if you're based in London. For me, who uh, live and work in Yorkshire, it's uh, not quite so easy to, to pop down all the time. But that then, with the team of experts we've got, we it was a 15-month process um, where the scope of the, the standard was drafted. And so we all agreed that this is what we wanted it to, to do. And BSI signed that off. Uh, we then had to fill it with content and then go through the usual kind of review process of um, uh, taking stuff out, adding stuff in and uh, read going through it with a fine tooth comb. Um, and at the end of all of that, reviewing it all together and posting it for a public consultation. So anyone, um, and I never realised this until I did start uh, start the process with the BSI, you can go on the BSI website and the standards for all sorts of things out there, anything you can imagine really, and you have the right to comment on it and say, I don't think you've covered this fully, I think you should do, um, do this differently. So everyone has the ability to do that. And then after that was all done, we have a final round of review and... Um, then it was published. Now, it's probably important to mention some of the key members of the team as well. There's David Hackett, who chaired the group, uh, Charles Fentiman, who uh, he's a substrate manufacturer, Virginia Stoven from University of Sheffield, Dusty Edge, uh, Heather Rumble from University of Portsmouth and Catherine Xavier. So all these people gave up their own time um, with the, the main idea being that this standard is good for um, the UK green roof industry. Um, and then, so... Within the standard, it is it's it's quite a dry standard. I'll be, I'll be honest; it's a series of test methods, but it's very important to get that kind of base level done to hopefully now progress the UK industry. Within the standard, we do have a set of guidelines within there or recommended values that um, we've put in to say, look, generally an extensive, a good extensive green roof substrate should should fall between these values. But we're not saying that it's a one size fits all. You may be slightly out of these parameters and. We're not saying that that is a bad thing. That's up to you to to understand and um, understand the green roof, understand the depth of the substrate that's going in, understand where it's situated in the UK. Obviously, the north of Scotland is very different to the south coast of England. What vegetation is going to go onto it? And um, what the pitch of the roof is? What the aspect of the roof is? So you have got all these uh, aspects as well. That so we'd be very kind of 
clear to try and say, look, it's, it's not something to beat someone around the head with. It's something to help guide people and get you in the right direction. But ultimately, if um, well, more certainly education hope that we is can needed, play our own small part here in this, um, in this conversation in, um, in, 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 in doing in that. So, so tell me then a little bit about some of the um, the criteria or the metrics that you're, um, what is it that you're assessing when you talk about kind of agreeing on some standardised tests? What are the what are the range of tests that you um, that you've that you've agreed that um, should be applied in order to to make a you know a robust assessment? Yeah, so within any kind of soil assessment or sports turf root zone assessment or green roof assessment, you, you generally split the, the criteria into two separate camps. One is the physical characteristics of the soil, and generally that focuses around the water uh, movement for the for the soil or the substrates. And then the other side of it is the chemical side um, or the chemistry within the substrate. So in terms of physical, we touched upon it earlier, for a green roof substrate, a big um, one thing to measure is the bulk density. So how heavy is that substrate? Obviously, you want it to be lightweight on a green roof situation. It means you could put more soil down or substrate down or um, requires less reinforcement of the building. At the same time, you don't want it too lightweight. I've tried some um, some products on my own green roof in my back garden where it's almost been so lightweight that the wind's blown them off. And that's a, I think, something that you often forget about. Roofs are very exposed environments. Um, and so you have to be very careful what you put on there because anything coming off only really goes one way and that, that's down. And then the main other aspects of physical is the water, really. How much water can the substrate hold? Um, you want it to hold a certain amount to keep the plants alive. But at the same time, you don't want it to hold on to so much that it becomes waterlogged. Um, which can ultimately cause plants to die as well. Plants do need oxygen in the in the root zone, um, and the roots do absorb oxygen. Um, so you don't want it to hold on to water to never drain. Um, and that that falls quite nicely into the the particle size distribution as well. What you can do is uh, essentially you put a dried sample of your substrate through a set of sieves, and you measure what comes out. So how much of it is very coarse particles, how much of it is kind of medium particles, and how much of it is very fine particles. Because a good soil or a good substrate should generally have a nice mixed combination of all three of those aspects. If it's too coarse, it's not going to hold on to any moisture. But at the same time, if it's too fine, it's going to hold on to too much moisture. So you can actually start to predict some of these characteristics as well. And then the other main physical characteristic is how much organic matter is in there. As we discussed earlier, you don't want too much because you can actually promote too um, too much excessive growth. But at the same time, plants are living, growing organisms. They need a certain amount of organic matter in there. And people can sometimes potentially be a bit lean on that aspect of things um, because these plants have got a stay up there the idea of the roof is it's up there for 30 40 50 100 years as you said so you need to give the plants every the best case of surviving and um, so that leads quite nicely onto the chemistry so what we also measure in the chemistry is um physically how much nutrition is available in the substrate to begin with obviously that will change over time once natural soil dynamics take over but you're wanting to give the plants a good start in in their life on the roof um, and then some other important ones are something like pH. Um, the pH of soils can, can really vary, and that's why you get such diversity of, of plant life. Um, even across somewhere like the UK, you can have very acidic grasslands or you can have calcareous grasslands. And between the two of the, that change of pH, you promote different um, growing environments for, for different plants. Uh, and then we've got some other ones in there which are more... Uh, 
what I would call kind of fail safe kind of checkups where you're essentially checking if there's any nasties in the substrates. Um, unfortunately, you do sometimes get cases where people have uh, cut corners and maybe use recycled material from um, not necessarily clean sources. And I've seen a couple of rooms where this has happened where um, maybe the manufacturer or the, the actual um, installer wasn't aware of what was in the substrate because the, these tests weren't conducted and they're actually quite full of um, some quite nasty heavy metals, which A, is not going to help the plants growing at all, but at the same time, you've got the problem of potentially these heavy metals could be leaching from that roof and being a, a point source of pollution to the, the water source. And then the other one is uh, e electrical conductivity. And we use this as quite a general measure of how essentially how salty the substrate is. Um, most substrate is generally pretty fine. But what has happened, and I know one uh, one supplier, they had an issue once and they managed to, with testing, diagnose the problem is they also stockpile um, salt for gritting in the in the winter. Uh, and then in the summer on the same stockpile, they started stockpiling green roof substrate and they only I realized there was a problem when they put all the plants in the substrate and um and the plants died and subsequent testing revealed that the the saltiness of that substrate was way higher than it should be and so, obviously can't so there's there's obviously lots going on though is it is so it the case now that um that the is the expectation now that these, um, well. this this kind of this um these palette of testing options have been agreed that that the that the industry is going to be doing this at source or are you thinking more about um the the role of the standard in terms of um in terms of being a kind of a light touch policeman as it were uh, of, of of roofs to try and kind of just nudge nudge quality um back back up where on those instances individual instances where it falls down Yeah, I think it's going to get involved in in lots of different situations. I think the, the very first starting point is the manufacturers. Manufacturers have spec sheets usually anyway, um, but the problem you often get is you don't know where those numbers have come from and it's different numbers of different manufacturers. So that as a starting point allows manufacturers to say, look, this is what our substrate is. Um, you know, you might not want it, but you know this is it and we can compare ours to other manufacturers very easily now. Uh, the other aspect to it, I think, is a lot of um, specifiers as well. Is, is then understanding what's in the substrate and what they want from it, but also at the same time of making sure they get what they've asked for. Obviously, it's very good, easy. It's very easy to look at a specifying uh, a specification sheets, but what arrives on site might be very different and it may be variable in, in quality. And that's often been part of a lot of people's problem is that they don't really have anything to go to. They just say, look, that one, that bag didn't look very much like the previous bag, but how do you quantify that? And so this allows people now to start quantifying that if they do have issues. And I think, again, from someone like your point of view, it's it's potentially helping to diagnose problems. It's A lot of problems um, can be quite simply diagnosed, but at the same time, if there's more of a deep underlying issue, it's very hard to diagnose. Yeah, it's certainly, I think, in uh, terms of the, um, the, the, just the, the, the revival aspect of, um, of my business where we get called in to, um, to, um, to help um, diagnose what might have gone wrong. This is going to be, this is a, a huge leap forward um, 
for us in terms of being able to be quite precise in terms of what's going on and 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 much more or more concise in terms of the um, the, the the recommendations in which we um, which we offer we rather than than you know the, um, the experimenting it like recommending adding bits of substrate here and there it's um it, it's it's an opportunity to um to give a kind of a holistic assessment of what's been done right at the start and planner and planners as, as as cost effective an intervention as as possible to get to get the, the you know the roof back up to um to the the specification that, that after all allowed that 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 building to get its planning condition in the um in the first place that brings me on a little bit something that duncan baker brown um, mentioned in our conversation last week was he was he was pretty um uh, pretty adamant that the um that the that the real kind of um sort like the direction of um of uh, of travel for those of us trying to um to increase quality is um is local authorities and so is there is is there a role that you see can you see this going in the direction that um that as well as you know it's it's great that we have depths of substrates which are um which i see a lot in um, specifications especially in london boroughs also planting mixes which are um which are to be encouraged do you think that this has got um the potential to to make its way in you know a british standard approved substrate make its way into um into planning conditions Yeah, it's a difficult question because it's um, it's. I've tried to stay away from it at the beginning. It's it's more to give people a, an ability to test substrates of a certain set of standards. So maybe potentially it could be used to say, look, you have to get your substrate tested according to these. Um, what I'm really key is not for is that the standard is used as something to spec certain projects out i know a lot of people the, the british soil standards which is the closest to what we've got is as kind of a, a similar a similar standard which is great it's been really good at pushing forward um quality of tops on it allows people something to spec up against but i know a lot of people that have have said that it sometimes can be inappropriately used for example if um if their soil topsoil maybe 0.1 of a ph out and so anyone kind of realistic would say that soil is going to be fine but because it's slightly out of the the set of specified guidelines it can no longer be used and that soil potentially is you know sat there and goes to waste which is obviously is a um environmentally not a good one but because people are very afraid to be specifying something that is slightly out of standard if something goes wrong obviously the blame can then fall on someone so i'm very keen that the standard isn't used as a stick to kind of um to be negatively used but at the same time i completely get your point for it to be used um widespread to by the lay person as well i think that's the other the key aspect is that they know that there's something to back them up um and i think that's part of what the green roof industry in the uk especially has suffered from is a lack of knowledge but a lack of somewhere to really to go and ask for help and say like i don't really yeah, know what um, i'm doing it, but you give i me, think you, you make know, a, a really good point direction. especially when you we bring know, it back to what you said about the regional and um, almost postcode wide um, variations in um in 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 the kinds of plantings the kind of ecological spaces that green roofs can achieve um the roles that they can serve in there in the um in the local environment so then there's there's just as much of a role you would you would say you the conclusion you would draw from um from what you've said is to um is 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 to um is to actively avoid kind of generic specifications and to to engage with ecologists with um you know with with experienced specifiers who are able to um to help translate 
translate uh, local conditions into um, into in, into the to the more general specifications for for projects, you know, project on a project by project basis. Yeah, ex ex exactly. I think I think the last thing I'd want to do as well is is for the standard to be accused of um, reducing diversity. I know the case you brought up earlier of your your hay green roof. Um, potentially, if if you made the standard so you have to pass these certain characteristics, your hay aspect of your <laughs> of your roof potentially could fail that um, you know those um, those parameters. And I think that that would be a very bad thing for that to happen because you're reducing people being innovative which is something that the green roof sector really does need the last thing you want is for every single green roof to look exactly the same diversity is obviously a very good thing especially um, something like vegetation which one um, question that i that i had which relates to, to kind of like some of the wider sort of, concerns um, or, sort of or, um, or, 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 or um or how to say not concerned so much as one of the one of the, the very live issues in um in, in in society at the moment is about um is about mitigating um mitigating climate change and 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 that's not just in terms of the um the benefits of the roof as installed but it's also about um the um the you know the the, the provenance of the materials how far they've been shipped um is there was there any um is is there any um scope do you think within the um within the standard for it to um for it to include um you know the the, the procurement process the um the the the, the supply chain uh, the embedded energy of the supply chain that kind of thing or or do we need to find other ways to try to um to minimize that would you say Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. I think at the moment the standard doesn't cover any of those questions. We were kind of starting at quite a, a not a low level, but at quite a basic level and trying to tick off the basic questions. But um, that's not to say that in future years, as it, as it gets refined, um, that it can't look at things like that. And a good example of that, I'm, I'm now involved in the... Um, the the review of the British subsoil standard and also subsequently it'll be the topsoil standard where these standards have been around for quite a while now and are kind of done what the the green roof standard um is hoping to achieve and we're now looking at incorporating some exactly some of those things that you've just talked about there so one would be the carbon sequestration ability of a subsoil and um and then al allowing be able to define that potentially allows a developer to say well um our carbon kind of audit of the site well the soil has actually you know can, can contribute to our carbon mitigation strategy by x whereas at the moment there's no way of really quantifying that so that'll be a really nice step forward because it's really promoting the soil and potentially substrate as a, a resource to be used on site not just something that you spec in and just chuck, just chuck around on the site um, and the same goes for the rainwater heart um holding ability of the soil as well ultimate soils are exactly the same as substrate you can manufacture them or specify them in different ways and some are much better holding on to water so they should be considered as part of a site-wide kind of management plan or environmental audit so there's no reason why in the future we can't do that i think the part of the problem is it's um it's kind of it's partly baby steps for the industry at the moment so age is getting green roofs consistently good across the country is kind of priority number one but completely agree with you the 
the the supply chain is a big part of it and that's some of my reservations about some materials is if you look at carbon audits of some substrates a lot of the component can come from that lightweight um aggregate aspect of the the substrate that's the forms the majority of the carbon the embedded carbon in the substrates from them because the manufacturing process involves heating them to say four or five hundred degrees that can use quite a lot of energy so again it's sure, so, so speaking about thinking, your hay about roof the, it's very nice to keep on looking for alternatives more natural um, alternatives that potentially might that, have that less kind of an environmental that, wider that, environmental you know, impact it's been, um, it's been processed at, at extreme heat Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so the yeah the processing of them requires a lot of embedded energy, um, and then sometimes it can use a waste product, which is a good one. So it's it's that kind of balancing of uh, what's most important: is it the carbon or the energy, or is it actually the physical having the green roof? So it's it's not like a simple question of less carbon. Is Tom, this has been um, this has been um, super interesting. It's been um, it's been really great to get underneath the um, underneath the skin of the, um, of the of the of the standard and the and the process that brought you brought you to it. I wonder if just to wrap up, I could ask you um, a few quick fire questions. So, um, King for a day. If you could change one thing uh, to make the world or your little corner of it a better place, uh, what what would you go for? Well, you... <laughs> we're all friends here, so we yeah, can say whatever you like. I can't say I, I dissolve the monarchy, can I? That's probably uh, out of order. I would probably... I'd, I'd, um, I'd probably... <laughs> I'd say I was thinking about this earlier today, and I think um, one of the things I've... The documentaries I found the most relaxing is there's a guy called Ken Burns who makes these absolutely fantastic documentaries about... Pretty much anything. Um, he did one on baseball. Um, he's done one on the, the American Civil War. Um, anything you think of, he's done these amazing kind of epic documentaries. And one of the best ones, I've watched it a number of times now, is about the American West. And it essentially follows the rise of America from 1800 all the way through to kind of 1920. And if you ever want to get an idea of why America is the way it is, you watch... 10 hours of um, documentary footage and you kind of realise that, um, you know, maybe some of the problems... It's on my list and we will put a link to it in the um, in the notes um, accompanying uh, the podcast. So okay then, uh, to close up, to three Ken good Burns things. First of all, um, one podcast, book, film um, that you um, that you think everyone listening should, um, should uh, engage with. One um, favourite person or social media account we should all follow. And finally, because um, this is um, this is obviously what we're all, we're all working in um, in the field of. What's your favourite place to immerse yourself in nature, and why? Yeah, so I'd say podcast-wise. Um, is reasons to be cheerful with with Ed Miliband and I've um, my girlfriend got me onto it about a year ago and it, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think part of it I find quite a bit depressing because um, it's it's a sad indictment of kind of our political situation that Ed Miliband 
on this podcast is clearly himself uh, and comes across as a kind of a very gauging person, whereas the political kind of system when he was Labour leader probably forced him to be less like himself and probably much more maybe awkward than he he actually is in real life. But the, the podcast examines uh, political ideas um and essentially reasons to be to be cheerful that it's not all doom and gloom and there are people out there well, we're trying nice to um, we're trying to do our own um, uh, uh, a little bit to drive in, um, in that direction kind of by accentuating some of the good so stuff I'd, as well yeah, so i'll definitely put my that. shoulder to that wheel so um one person or social media account he's fabulous isn't he yeah exactly yeah Yeah, person um, James Wong, who's uh, at Botany Geek on Twitter. He's got a he's got a great uh, kind of Twitter following. Yeah, really good. And someone that's not afraid, I find to um, to really promote discussion and science based or evidence based discussion. I think is great. I think too often the environmental movement has in the past got caught up in it in itself a bit too much and maybe uh, not not let evidence kind of prove what's right. And I think the whole GM argument in the nineties was a very good example of that where, you know, now GM food potentially is a, is a very environmentally um, good way of kind of helping to save the world. Um, and James Wong's very good at not being afraid to promote those kind of arguments. But at the same time, he makes a, a damn good um, plant-based kind of uh, terranium at home. And he's, 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 I'm pretty jealous of his hey, flat. Yeah, he's, 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 he's a real he's inspiration. Like the, um, the final um, one, so, yeah, um, before we sign off for the night is, um, favorite place born, to immerse um, yourself. You're in Yorkshire, so I'm kind of suspecting that you're going to, you're not going to, you're not going to go too far from home, but, but let's hear it. Yeah, you don't don't have to go don't have to go too far. But I'm going to cheat and pick two. I'm going to go for the Peak District and uh, specifically Edale. That kind of holds a, a place close to mine and my family's heart. Being studied in Sheffield for eight years, it was nice and easy to get out to, and got many happy memories of uh, going to Edale. There used to be, I think it's still running, a fantastic thing called the Folk Train, um, where you'd get on the local stopping train to Edale from Sheffield, and there'd be a folk band playing. Uh, and you'd be encouraged to get on the train, have some beers, get to a pub in Edale, sit by the fire and listen to some folk music, and then get on the train on the way back again and, and listen to more folk music. Um, so I'm going to have to go for the Peak District, but at the same time, slightly more epically, it's got to be the Scottish West Coast, West Coast of Scotland, Ullapool Way. Um, some of the I days I've had out there. I agree more. I feel like it's my, my spiritual home. Really it's one of the two or three places in the world, I would say. The, when you um, get the weather the, right, the Western, Western Highlands, where really you feel like you're in a in a cathedral when you uh, when you're moving through. I get the same feeling being up there as I did when I was hiking around the the redwoods or or sitting with my legs dangling over the edge of um, Grand Canyon. It's it's. It's it's magisterial, yeah, wonderful. Well, well, we um, may well bump into you there one um, one day. It um, sounds like we've um, we've got the we've got the same perspective on on that one hundred percent. Tom, thanks ever so much for um, for joining me on this. I um, I'm really grateful for you um, spending the time to um, to to, uh, to to walk us through a little bit about what you've been up to, and I'm really excited to um, well, hopefully to work with you and also to you know to follow the standard and um, and, and 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 the rest of um, the rest of your professional development as you. Um, as you as you make your way thanks ever so much indeed
hope you enjoyed this episode. Making Good will be back next week. If you found value in the uh, in this week's discussion, please consider following us on Twitter at Making Good Pod and uh, and sharing this episode in your networks. It helps to grow awareness of the um, the work the speakers are doing and and to build resilient networks between those of us trying to do uh, trying to do good work. Hopefully, thanks again. Have a good week, and we will see you next Wednesday. <laughs>